Welcome back to the Comics Course, Miskatonic University's uh, Remote Education Offering Program of Graphical Literature and Society and History, which is 209. Uh, I'm laughing because we're re-recording the intro because we confused each other so much. We had to start over. Uh, I'm your Professor Hamby and my TA Rowan is here. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Rowan is only half paying attention because she's playing some video game. Uh, that was made to be freely available and yet separate people from their hard-earned money. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. No idea, huh? Um, so I'm Professor Hamby. You can find me on Twitter at Prof Hamby. I'm doing better at being active on there, but still need to uh, spend some more time and get comfortable with it. The website is comicscourse.org. I do have some updates that hit in the last week. I got more coming. And you can find us on comicscourse.captivate.fm as well. But I am hoping uh, uh, that you could also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, all those sorts of things. But not Spotify, because soon I'm hoping that they'll be about as relevant as the radio options that came up during the Napster era, which is to say a trivia question. Because I don't like Spotify. So... Uh, let's jump into today. We missed last week. We, why did we miss last week? We missed last week because, frankly, it was a bad physical and mental health week for me. And I had every intention of recording, and it didn't happen. And so here we are this week. And we're just going to roll forward, because that's what we do here, right? Mm -hmm. And that means that, first up, is Ta-Nehisi Coates's uh, beginning of Black Panther with the storyline, A Nation Under Our Feet. Now, Ta-Nehisi Coates helped contribute to a bunch of the storylines that we kind of skipped over. But there were a bunch of storylines involving Thanos' attack with the Black Guard, uh, with Doc the Doom War, with Namor's attack. And frankly, through all of this, it just kind of was Punch uh, T'Challa in the face day. And Punch Wakanda in the face. Uh, so... A lot of bad stuff happened, and Wakanda was left in turmoil. And that is where Ta-Nehisi Coates' full Black Panther run starts up. Now, it's worth talking a little bit about Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, he can be a fairly contentious figure in some circles. I know he received a lot of harassment on Twitter, and he left Twitter as a result of it. Uh, but it's worth considering him as a writer as well as his works because he's an accomplished writer outside the world of comics. Uh, he writes for The Atlantic. Uh, he's recently published his first novel. Uh, he, he is a man of no small intellect and consideration. Separate the work from the artist. Right. And I certainly don't always agree with him, but I don't see a reason to get so upset about what he says either. So I, I'm going to go ahead and tell people... When we talk about Black Panther here, we're going to talk about Black Panther as it fits into graphical literature. And I'm not a, you know, it, it's not that I don't have an interest in how comics are put together. If I had infinite time, I would know everything about every comics writer and every part of the process and all the background history. But I'd know all that for tons of other areas of the world, too. Um, the, the truth is, is that given time to make a choice about reading biographies of comic writers and reading the comics they write, I'd rather read the comics they write and talk about the merits of the final product rather than talk about them as people. Because I'm more interested in comics than I am people, to be honest. 
This is why I'm not an anthropology or psychology, because I think you're supposed to care about humanity for those things. And I actually care about stories. Um, Shocking. I know, I know. Well, you know, we here at Miskatonic like to say that from we bring light into the darkness, just not everybody's going to be there at the end with us. Especially, you know, th th this is why our senior classes are really small, to be honest. I was supposed to say, especially if you work in ancient history. Ancient history, ancient languages, and frankly, the entire science department all are have very low retention rates. But we'll just say that. But to be fair, science, just because of the students themselves, I think they put the whole university in danger. I think it really started going downhill when they started creating that interdisciplinary tract between ancient languages and physics. Um, wasn't, they should have saw that coming. Yeah, it just hasn't gone well. Not at all. Anyway, so as we talk about this, I do want to bring in external ideas that affect the writing of the work, but I am not interested in going on and talking about Ta-Nehisi Coates himself a great deal. Um, but because he is a person with an actual mind who has real thoughts, um, and... It, is interested in pushing some of that into his work, I do think it's worth looking at those outside influences, but we can leave Todd Nehisi Coates as a personality out of it. I, I don't think that's productive here. So the titling of the first three volumes, and I think this is affecting the Black Panther mythology in some interesting ways. However, I don't think this is really sticking heavily. As we talk about this, you'll see that we are talking about a very different Black Panther uh, idea of Wakanda. Wakanda is a part of the Black Panther mythology than they represented in the Black Panther movie. And this content was certainly available to them to use for the movie, and they went more with the Reginald Hudlin vision, which I think is probably a wise idea. It was, it was better suited for a movie script. And I... And part of that is because there's not a lot of feel-good here in A Nation Under Our Feet. It is pretty much everybody is a bad person, and everybody is a victim, and everybody's trying to do the right thing, and maybe nobody is. Including T'Challa, who's written probably the most humanly here of any of the writers. Mm -hmm. I mean, at least uh, uh, since his jungle action days. He's written just like as a guy doing this, not a virtual, you know, god of intellect. And no, the Black Musketeers do not pop back up. Oh, sad. I know. I mean, they reintroduced the idea of an extended family during the Reginald Hudland days. It was they could have brought the Black Musketeers back. But nope, they continue to be the black sheep of the Black Panther family. Oh, it's not just sad. <laughs> So, I, I think we have to start with the title itself, A Nation Under Our Feet. Now, for those who don't know, A Nation Under Our Feet was major award-winning nonfiction work by Steve Hahn. Um, and it's about the history of black political power in the United States. Now, it is interesting because when people usually talk about political power they of African-American, you know, people of African diaspora... Uh, in the U.S., a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, they were enslaved and there was no political process and then they were released and then there was political process 
and a lot of blacks went up north, and these are kind of the stages of the evolution of political power. And one thing that Steve Hahn shows is that that is not true. That political power and the history of it in the United States is much more complicated than that, including the fact that even when they were slaves, that many of them uh, were engaging in political action of some kind. I mean, I, and I'm not talking about, you know, fermenting revolution against the whites on the plantations. Um, it's a lot more complicated than that. And to understand that better, I encourage you, if you're interested, to actually read A Nation Under Our Feet. Uh, it's, it's a very powerful read, and I think this proves some traditional assumptions about how the evolution of black political power in America. Uh, but one underlying theme that connects it all, because I'm not going to spend too much time on this, this is still actually a comic book podcast, uh, it, it is this theme that runs through all of it of people were never passive. Even before the Civil War happened, blacks were organizing in a variety of ways. And sometimes it was just about communication. Sometimes that's all they could do. But they did, which is a prerequisite for being able to take action. And communicating about the world and opportunities is inherently political action itself. And they did more than that at times. So that idea of ongoing constant political action of varying types, and then they forging an identity for themselves and creating a nation under their feet, is the theme that Ta-Nehisi Coates really pulls into Black Panther here. And this is the part where I am very curious to find out if this will become a surviving part of the Black Panther mythology, because it directly contradicts what Reginald Hudlin really built into the mythology. In a lot of ways, Reginald Hudlin was the first one to put forefront the idea of the Wakandan utopia. You know, uh, in the Don McGregor days, back in jungle action, Wakanda was seen as a place transitioning from a much simpler time, and, and I say simple in a sort of technological uh, sense. Uh, they, they had a rich culture and society, but advancing into a more industrial age and uh, simultaneously post-industrial at the same time. Though McGregor in the 70s probably wouldn't have thought in those post-industrial terms. Uh, but certainly the computer technology and that stuff would qualify. But that was an old Wakanda. And then Christopher Priest really kept with that. But Reginald Hudlin said, no, Wakanda has always been Wakanda. Wakanda is a place of legend. It is as much a mythological thing as T'Challa himself. And... It is a place of wonder, and they invoked that wonder in the Black Panther movie when it opened. Which and was you, so cool. Right. And people went, whoa. And that had a, a particular, you know, effect on a lot of people of the African diaspora who live in a world that they're told was built by whites. You know, they're told all of Western civilization is built by white people, although I would argue the Greeks were not terribly white. You know, when we talk about whites, people really kind of mean Anglo-Saxon. And the Greeks were of different uh, uh, phenotypes, you know. But anyway, you know, that kind of uh, 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 assumption 
that everything of culture originates from light-skinned people, which is what our you're kind of told in our society growing up. Certainly, when I was a kid, that was the message told. Mm -hmm. um, makes that opening up of a utopian Wakanda very powerful. And the idea that Wakanda is very advanced and very cultured and very together and they love the Black Panther and they follow him and they're a warrior people with spirit and they're very focused on their unity as a part of that idea of Wakanda's utopia. And Ta-Nehisi Coates tears that apart. He completely dismisses it. And that part, I mean, they hit you with it if you buy this collection, you know, uh, the first Nation Under Our Feet trade collection, which I think might even be available for free on Kindle Unlimited, I'm not sure. Um, you see T'Challa standing there in a ceremonial garb, and behind him are two giant flagpoles with the Wakandan flag on fire. The nation is in turmoil. This is, this is not a subtle context. And as we open it, indeed, they are in turmoil. Uh, they've gone through the Doom War and the flooding from Namor, and lots of them have died. And faith in T'Challa is very low on the part of the people. Shuri, we find out, is in the suspended state after being attacked by Thanos' Black Order, where she's neither alive nor dead. And T'Challa is distracted in part by trying to find a way to revive her. And we open up at a scene at the Great Mound where a riot breaks out as somebody mentally influences them. Uh, we also, by the way, I love, we see in a number of places, this funky little circuitry design so cool. that very much reminds me of Tron. Some, somebody had fond childhood memories of Tron, I think, when they drew those. But, but they're a fun little aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. I hit my... Uh, well, the arm that holds the mic, technically, with my drink. So as the storyline goes forward, I, I mentioned when I talked about all that stuff in between uh, A Nation Under Our Feet and Reginald Hedlund's run, that there had been a story about rebel Dora Milaje. That comes up again as the Queen Mother sentences the main rebel to her death. And then using an experimental flying suit for the Dora Milaje, she's broken out of prison by her lover, another Dora Milaje. And they begin moving around the country, working to rescue women who have been victimized. Um, I mean, they basically find on the outskirts of Wakanda, these tribe, tribal areas where men have just gathered up women to make harems by force. And so the Dora Milaje begin basically growing a organization of women around them. Now, this is in part interesting because traditionally before now, Wakanda was represented as a warrior culture where the women were warriors also and probably would not have been easily victimized the way they're represented here. Um, now, I'm not saying this is unrealistic for Africa. I mean, certainly we've seen from things like uh, some of the tribal conflicts that happen in modern-day Africa these sorts of things happen, so it's kind of ripped from the headlines. But again, it directly contradicts what has historically been represented about Wakandan society. Mm -hmm. And it makes it more like the real world and less like the utopia. Of course, he set utopia on fire. Yeah. So this is something to consider. Now, thrown into this, 
we don't have Killmonger himself, but we have a woman with the power to bring people into rage and frenzy who had been associated with Killmonger. And we have a shaman who has some sort of elemental connection to the land. And they are organizing what is best described at the Nagandan border region as a terrorist group that they call the people. Meanwhile, the rogue Dora Milaje and the followers they're gathering are called the Midnight Angels. So you have this civil unrest in Wakanda, which has been through three major disasters mm -hmm. and conflicts. Um, one terrorist group, one paramilitary uh, vigilante group, and they talk about joining forces but can't come to an agreement. And then you have the previous regent, Shuri, who's MIA, and people probably believe she's dead. But T'Challa is trying to find a way to revive her. And he is going through this time where people have a lack of faith in him. And there is a couple of interesting moments in the book where he talks about, for example, uh, when his uncle seated the throne to him, he gave him some advice that a ruler's power is not in what they do, but in how people see him. And therefore, mystique is important. But that one of the things his uncle didn't tell him about is about the power of the people. And that idea, the power of the people, is a very prominent theme through this. And it's interesting, and one of the reasons I have to question strongly whether or not this will persist through becoming a part of the Black Panther mythology is it's in some ways introducing a very American idea to the Black Panther mythology. I mean, Coates clearly wants to talk about American conflicts and issues here, mm -hmm. uh, including the treatment of women and African communities and society as a whole, uh, which is a valid thing to talk about. Um, and the power of the people. I mean, the power of the people is a central theme here. I mean, heck, he named the story run after a book about American political power. Mm -hmm. And that idea of that democratic goal is not part of Wakandan mythology at this point. Now, obviously, the goal of every writer is for what they do to become part of the mythology, but I'm just not confident it will. Mm -hmm. uh, and it will be interesting to see if it does. And if the viewpoints of American writers and readers uh, sort of dominate this, and historically they have, especially in superhero comics from DC and Marvel, but there is an increasingly global audience uh, that I wonder if they overlooked. And that brings up an interesting question that I don't know. I wonder how much of an audience Black Panther has in Africa. I would think that Africans would adopt him as a superhero figure. But I don't actually know, and I can't speak to that. So I'll, I'm going to try to find some research numbers on that. Black Panther and uh, Africa and how he's perceived. Um, that'd be interesting. Yeah, that would be interesting. So that is, in general, what happens here. Um, now, we do have some more parts of Wakanda added. We go to Bernin Azaria, which is the city sort of founded in the name of T'Challa's grandfather, Azari the Wise. Uh, we meet a philosophy professor who used to tutor the Queen Ramona and has now been exiled from the palace. And he kind of, this, you know, grandfatherly dreadlocked figure becomes sort of the philosophical heart of the question. 
Now, this doesn't get resolved in book one, so we'll talk about this more later, but he is a philosophy professor, and we find that this shaman from the people used to be a student of his and comes to talk to him, as does Ramona later. And in some ways, where this old philosophy professor uh, is finding himself torn between the monarchy and this movement in the people is meant to reflect philosophically how Wakanda itself will go. He exists as a symbol of Wakanda itself here. And he is older, he's intelligent, he dresses in some very traditional ways, but he has radical ideas about Wakandan power for the people, not the monarchy. And he proposes questions. Uh, he proposes questions where he says, it's not that people should have answers, but what questions they come up with in response to the question uh, reveal things. And when we first meet him, he is introducing the philosopher Locke to people. Now, I'm not going to go into a long run here, but Locke's ideas about people in society uh, certainly betray something about what Coates is trying to talk about. And we're going to talk about that more when we get into volumes two and three of A Nation Under Our Feet. And, yeah, I, I mean, what are you thinking so far about this? I mean, I, I'm coming at this from the standpoint of having read and reread it multiple times. Where are you coming down on this idea of Wakanda being this nation now of social and political strife internally? It just feels like such a jarring shift that I feel like should have happened slowly and not in one comic. Right. It is pretty abrupt, and it's a very radical change of direction. It, I just feel like Wakanda wasn't the right fit for this story. It feels too American to me. It does. It feels very American in a lot of ways. And, and, and that's kind of interesting as we look at the history of Wakanda, which became, which the goal was for it to be very African. You could argue that, you know, the early writers like Don McGregor, who tried to make it very African, didn't actually know what African was. And of course, Africa is a large continent. It encompasses a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. um, but that was certainly their attempt. While this feels like an attempt to take American social issues and put them on a country that happens to be African, because it is what provides a, uh, a large audience for yeah. the point. Yeah, I feel like this was the writer wanted to write what the writer wanted to want and be damned what comic he was given. Yeah, but but that said, I think he wanted to write Black Panther because it is a black topic. It's a story yeah. about, uh, it's a topic about black people. And I think black people and black political power matter to Coates. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's clear from his writing, mm -hmm. uh, both in and outside Black Panther. Mm -hmm. So I don't think he would have done it with just anything. But I do think he is definitely bringing American ideas over. Now, that said, these are not purely American ideas. I mean, many African countries are struggling with despotic leaders and horrible governments. I mean, I don't want to date the podcast too much, but right now uh, there are African governments that have a new government every 18 months, it seems like, mm -hmm. um, because they're very unstable. And the and with fixed elections and all kinds of things so black political power is a topic in africa mm -hmm. but i think bringing it up in a real world country context 
would be very different than bringing it up in the El Dorado of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. And I'm not sure Wakanda benefits from being more realistic. Yeah. Because um, that's the question you have to ask yourselves in stories. Isn't, is this a topic worth talking about? But is this the place to talk about that topic? And I don't think this is the place. I personally really enjoyed it being a utopia. I did too. And I thought that provided an ability to tell stories about black people uh, in terms of representation that was really powerful. Yeah. And this undermines. Yeah, that's how I feel. It feels really undermining. I mean, it, 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 we have places like, uh, you know, Adelan ruled by the Inhumans who are dominantly white. You know, there's no reason for them to be, but almost all of them are white. And the, they have occasional political problems, and but nobody's going to mess with Black Bolt. And nobody really questions that they should be loyal. Just sometimes they do things in secret, like the slavery thing we talked about when T'Challa visited them on the moon. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a brother trying to take over occasionally and this kind of thing. So, you know, little bits of political turmoil and stuff are introduced, but it still gets to be a fantasy city where people are amazing. Instead, Wakanda's kind of been torn down to where everybody's very human and awful. Yeah. And that takes something away from... I mean... Naganda. Naganda's an awful place. Do stories about black people in Africa in a fantasy country being awful in Naganda. I would have totally been into that. You know, Naganda needs to rebuild, because they would have suffered through a lot of these same events... And T'Challa's involved, and but let Wakanda still be Wakanda. Mm -hmm. I don't think by losing something that is symbolic and gives a representation of black utopia and political power and social development, I don't think we improve the world of reading by tossing that away to make it crappy and horrible. Yeah. Uh, I think we can talk about problems in Africa and the and representations of black political power by introducing that into a new place or, or an existing place in the case of Naganda. Mm -hmm. uh, also, however, what we find out is that while Shuri may be frozen in our world, she is still active somewhere else. And we find her talking with someone who looks like her mother, but isn't because she's present in the spiritual plane of Wakanda in the, the, and I, I hope I don't mispronounce this, the Djalia, the plane of Wakandan memory. Djalia? Um, they ha they do sprinkle the text here with some words from African dialects. And I don't know the pronunciation patterns well myself, so I'm doing the best I can. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I you know, we get some more storylines we go along. We find out more about uh the shaman that's with the people and we find out that he's not like Ajabe was he's he really does want what he feels is good for people now he's willing to plant bombs and set them off in crowds i mean he's not a nice person he's definitely a terrorist uh but his goal is actually a better wakanda though we may have a very big disagreement with him about what that should be there's also a question with these Midnight Angels. What is their vision for Wakanda when they're done? Mm -hmm. And they, at one point, 
kill the leader of the Jabari tribe and destroy his palace. And there does seem to be a fairly strong anti-male sentiment, although it'd be hard to fault some of them for it, considering how they some of them have been treated. Yeah. Um, also, a strange thing for me in here is the uh, that that's been around for a little while, which is the and this goes really back to Reginald Hudlin's run, but the introduction of the White Wolves, the uh, Hatut Ziraz. I, I'm probably getting that totally wrong. Uh, but basically, the secret police is now being treated more like an elite guard, but they're still referred to as a secret police and used by T'Challa regularly. I find all of that very weird. Yeah, that's weird. I always thought their introduction was weird in general. Yeah. But the, now, I, I should mention the art, and uh, you're kind of my resonant art person. What do you think of the art through this? I mean, I like it, but I do know that the extreme shading um, in the faces bothers some people. Okay, this is going to be controversial. I really like the extreme shading on faces. I think it looks really cool and really distinct for art styles. Yeah, it, it's, I, I, it, it doesn't fit the physics of the lighting, but it is, I think it's cool too. Yeah, and it really helps you see distinct features, like right. noses and stuff. And there's a lot of variation done in the shading in the lit areas. And it really helps you make each person's face unique and different. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a style that I see as being divisive for people, but I like it. Yeah. Um, and there's not one dominant palette that covers the whole book. I mean, every scene is really colored distinctly. Which I really like. And I like the fact that T'Challa is represented... With these large swaths of dark, he's given this very powerful face. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, frankly, he's given some features that you don't... I, I mean, just to be blunt, T'Challa... The Black Panther has a history of often being colored very light-skinned. Mm -hmm. Heck, in Contest of Champions, he was downright white and uh, in, uh, that, in some scenes. And in that one comic, someone messed up and actually made him white. Right. <laughs> and... His features sometimes, I'm not saying that they aren't uh, 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 of an African phenotype. Um, if we were to say, be talking anthropologically, we would say a Negroid um, a, a, a set of features. Um, but I think they've often been toned down by artists, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I think we've done a lot better with that when we've had black artists, mm -hmm. uh, but not 100%. And here, these features are what I think of as very sub-Saharan African features, and they're very strong ones, mm -hmm. and I like it. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's, you know, the artist is really putting his fist on the table and saying, this is what a Wakandan would look like. I also like that in the art, they've been making each person a different shade, and they're not all just the same brown. Right, and you see, like, those that have more prominent facial features are a little bit lighter, you know, um, there's variation. Yes, mm -hmm. as, as there would. Yeah, I, I know this shocks some people, but even in an area where they haven't, you know, had a large mixing of phenotypes, there's variation. Yeah, it's shocking, like, it's right? Something that's been bothering me in some of the art and some of the past ones that they're just all the same shade of brown. Right, and that's just not true. I mean, I. I know some people say, oh, well, that only started, 
you know, once people started moving around, people have moved around the world since, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, the fact is we have genetic diversity and that means we have gen diversity of features. Uh, and that is even in relatively small populations. Mm -hmm. uh, and Wakanda is not a particularly small population. Yeah. And despite all the talk about, you know, being xenophobic and all that, clearly they do have a history of sometimes taking in others. I mean, we have characters that, you know, came in from Nyganda. We have the Queen Mother herself, who was South African originally, you know, and, and on and on and on. I mean, clearly some travel does happen between the borders and some exchange of people. Which, by the way, uh, we have a new map here. Ooh, Wakanda's moved again. Yes. And it's interesting. They're trying to integrate things. So we have Wakanda, which is now on the lake of Lake Victoria, Nyanza. Of course. Which, I mean, Lake, Nicor lake Victoria is a real place in Africa. So this gives us a reference point. However, I don't think that we've ever seen... You know, the U.S. military successfully staged multiple large aircraft carriers, like seven, eight, nine of them, into Lake Victoria. That just yeah. isn't realistic. And so that means that this has now moved since Reginald Hudlin's run mm -hmm. from somewhere on the coast. Yeah. But at least it's near water still. Yep. That's an improvement from oh, yeah. that. Now, we do have Nyganda to the south now. Now, I'm pretty sure Nyganda was referenced as being to the West previously. That's what my memory recalls, too. And, interestingly, mm -hmm. they now have Azania down there, which you may remember Azania back from the 1987 yeah. Black Panther miniseries when they were not allowed to call it South Africa. South or, no, sorry, 1984. 1987 was... I will never understand yeah. how you remember dates. Uh, not always accurately. Which, by the way, somebody asked me recently uh, how we prepare for these podcasts. And the truth is, I reread the comics. Sometimes I'll skim over some internet resources on things to refresh my memory or even pick up some new details. Sometimes I will write a few notes to myself, but these are largely off the cuff. Yeah. Because I like to keep it casual. But anyway, so previously, Azania was certainly to the south of Wakanda. So that's not surprising. But by the time we got to Don McGregor's run um, on Panther's Prey, where he rescued his stepmother from South Africa, Wakanda was, Azania had been replaced by South Africa at that point. And now South Africa is nowhere in sight. So I do find it amusing that they're trying to settle down a fictional geography and settle down their connection to two other fictional locations, Azania and Nyganda, while trying to make the internal politics and social issues of Wakanda more realistic. Yeah. <laughs> also, I feel bad for whoever had to make this map, because this map is definitely not going to stay canon. Not even a little bit. No, shit gets moved every time. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll talk about the, the Galactic Empire of Wakanda in a few weeks. Oh. As Why Wakanda goes to space. Why am I not surprised? I mean, really, you can't be surprised by that, can you? No. Um, also, bizarrely at the end here, they reprinted the Black Panther's first appearance in Fantastic Four. And what I'm guessing was an attempt to, you know, pad the numbers. Pad yeah, the page print. That's so weird. 
because this has nothing to do with the first one. Right. So during all this, uh, T'Challa has several epiphanies. Uh, some of them are delivered as soliloquies in his head to that we get to read. And a couple of them are in dialogues, especially with his mother, stepmother, Ramona. And he talks about, at several stages, you know, the power of the people. And that has not been considered enough in Wakandan's, uh, Wakanda's history. And he's not considered enough as a king. And that obviously is putting forward, again, the theme from the Steve Hahn book, A Nation Under Our Feet, which this borrows the title from. But while he's being treated much more like a real person, we also see Ramona uh, chastising him uh, in a sort of spiritual sense. You know, he says he doesn't know what to do. He says, there's nothing left, mother. I've given it all. And I'll just read verbatim her response here. No, T'Challa, let us not mince words here. You have never given willingly, you feel, the weight of the crown. But you have never felt the great honor of being king. Your people are a burden to you, and you have never let them forget this. You say you have given it all, you are wrong. You have never truly given yourself to your country. Uh, and that's certainly an idea. Uh, and and I, I, I think Don McGregor would disagree with that analysis. But I see, you know, the point here. Um, and it certainly is an attempt to, on Ta-Nehisi Coates' parts, part, to bring that idea of the monarchy as remote into the book. And that he's not interacted with the country as a civil servant but as somebody who puts up with the obligation. And I'm not sure that's entirely fair in the context of the history of the character. Yeah, I, I, this feels very much not like Black Panther to me. Like, he's just writing off all past comics and all character development from the past. Yeah, I kind of feel that way too. Like, I know it's a mythology, but it feels like he is kind of throwing out all the other parts that are vital to his character. Right. And I'll be honest, this just wasn't the story that I was interested in reading. Um, I, I think this is a story that I want to read. I don't want to read it in Wakanda. Yeah. So that's where we are with volume one of A Nation Under Our Feet. Um, I, I will add it to the reading list in the next few weeks. We will cover more of A Nation Under Our Feet. I think, however, next week to speed things along... I will combine volumes two and three into one chat yeah, to get through them more quickly. And then we'll get into some more. I do like some of what the, uh, Coates does with Shuri, though. I think it's really great, actually. Ooh. So I look forward to talking about that. And we'll talk about that versus the movies and some of my disagreements about that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So do you have anything to add before we part for a few days? Nothing I can think of. Okay. Well, next up is, in a few days, we'll also drop the uh, history of Malibu Comics. Ooh. Yep. And hopefully we'll get back on a regular posting schedule, barring any more health concerns. But these things do happen, so we roll with them the best we can, right? Right. Okay, so we're going to part for now and keep reading comics. Bye. Bye.